Welcome to Mental Health is Wealth. I'm your host, Antoine Wilbon, and today we'll be talking about emotional and mental imprinting. I want us to look at how we can become detectives of our own lives, and we can look at ourselves in a way that we can search our history, we can search our past, we can search our parents, our grandparents, and we can look at behaviors that we have sort of been given to us by our parents through birth, through being around different family members when we were children, and also how those things have affected us going forward. And you say, what is imprinting? Why do you have a type? Why do you like MacBook over a PC? Why do you like Coke and this person likes Pepsi? And you'll say, that's just my taste. That's just what I like. But it's like, where did you get that from? And in psychology, imprinting is simple yet profound. It's a highly effective learning process that occurs at a critical period in someone's life. It can notably impact how babies are raised, both in humans and in animals. While it may immediately bring up images of like a, a duckling following behind a human being that they first saw upon hatching. It imprinting isn't necessarily good or bad. We all experience it in some extent. However, it has strong effects on some people. Again, this isn't necessarily bad, but it can impact how you think, feel, and behave. As a result, understanding how it affects you can help you lead a happy and healthy life. It could also help you sort through some unhealthy behaviors or areas in which you feel stuck. Imprinting is important for us raising our children as it encourages them to follow their parents. Imprinting gives you that first bond with that. And this is referred to as filial imprinting. For example, in the wild, animals learn to hunt while watching their parents hunt. In humans, babies learn to speak by mimicking their parents' speech patterns. Many birds sing by imitating the other birds around them. One thing is true is that parents are not necessary for learning, but it's the thing of if you're around that constantly, you pick up those skills. You pick up those ingrained things that go into your mind, it go into your body makeup, it goes into how you eat, what you what you think about. And you say, well, you know what? I don't quite agree with that. But it's like, yeah, where'd you get a lot of those things from? Even like how you pick out your partner. You might think that you just met this nice, attractive young lady or or nice, attractive young man. And you say to yourself, I like them. But you're not realizing that there's parts of them that you're attracted to. It comes from your actual parents. It comes from whatever those experiences were when you were young. And, and they come from that. You'll find yourself picking out someone who has certain characteristics of your parents. And they're like, everybody's like, no, no. But if you think about it, you're going to either pick someone who's similar to your parents or you're going to go total opposite of your parents. But it all stems back to your parents. And, and so I always say, let's look at our lives from like when we were children and let's do like a family history or a little research project. I always say, if you can 
get to look at your grandparents, if you're able to like even ask questions like, how was grandmother? How was granddad? How was my aunt that was always around me? How was my uncles? How was my cousins that were older than me? And when you look at them and you say, well, this is why I make these certain choices is because the relationship with my parents was this way or that way. And I'm not even saying whether the relationships were good or bad or ugly or whatever. I'm not saying that they were functional or dysfunctional. What I'm saying is that those pieces that we took from these people that raised us are things that have been carried on probably three or four generations. And I always say, let's become a detective of how to use those things to get better at life, to get what we want. A lot of times I had to, and I always like to use myself for examples of when I'm doing the podcast is that I grew up in Gary, Indiana, and my parents were married and they were young. It was my dad was just getting back from uh, Vietnam at the time and their marriage didn't make it. You know, my dad passed away when I was like 11 years old and my mom had to figure it out. You know, she had to figure it out with these two kids. And you say my mom was young. She was like in high school when she started having kids. You know, I had my sister in high school, had me right, right after, you know, I think the diploma was still wet in her hand and they were married, you know, because back then you got married. You know what I mean? That was, you know, that was the way things were back then in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. You know, people still had these traditions. But the thing is, is that I had to actually not just look at my parents. I had to actually sit at the feet of my elders. Like when I was with my grandmother, when I was around both sides of the family, I would ask a lot of questions about how was these people that were around me when I was a baby. And I started to learn like about their relationships. How did they eat? How did they spend their money? How did they do certain things? And then once I saw that, I was like, you know what? This is why I do a lot of things. This is why I'm this way. And once I started to say, what is it about these mental and emotional imprinting that my family gave to me? And they gave to me because they got it from somewhere else. You know what I mean? And this imprint that they left on me, it started when I was a baby. So it's like that phase of like when you're a baby, it's called the limbic imprint. It refers to the process by which prenatal, postnatal experiences imprint on your limbic system, causing lifelong effects. The term is used to explain how early care of a fetus and newborn is important to lifelong psychological development and has been used as an argument for alternative for birth methods. Now, you might say, well, Bond, you're getting a little nerdy on me over here. You, you're using all these limbic words and all this other whatever. You know, and I'm like, you know what? We have to, because that is the key sign. The limbic portion is the key sign to what's been programmed in your mind. You might say, hey, man, my parents were like this, and I have no idea how I'm supposed to look at this. But I'm like always like this is like I look at it as sports. Go with what you got. Me being a, a coach of basketball, if I had a bunch of girls who, who just shot three pointers and they weren't really good on defense, you best believe I'm going to run an offense that, that allows us to set a lot of screens and shoot a lot of threes, let us stay in a zone and do a lot of trapping and run, run, run. That would be how I would play to my strengths. So you might say, well, how do I play to my strengths? Well, as someone who says, well, 
my mother was like this. My mom was a super clean person, always hardworking, but she wasn't super emotional. Like she wasn't like touchy feely. My mother was big on a boy being a boy and you go out there and you figure it out and you become a man and you don't depend on people. And that was the the imprint that she gave to me because it was like, from what I learned, like doing research on my sister and myself is that we were potty trained early. We were out of diapers like immediately, almost as soon as we were able to stand up, we were out of diapers and we were able to read and do our colors, numbers, and we can read. We can read basic sentences by the time we went to school. Before we even got to school, we were already reading and doing math. So my mom used to use these flashcards when we were little. And so my sister is older, two years older. So whatever my sister would do, I would do. So my mom instilled that in us at a young age. So that means that my mom was high on education and high on independence. My dad, he was really big on, he was very machismo. And so he was big on a man being a man and being good to women in, in his own right. And so like those things are like how he was with me and how he was with my sister. They were very loving, but he was quite different with both of us. And so I actually mimic a lot of his behaviors now with my daughters. I can see it. Very, very protective of them. We'll spoil them, but I'm really stern on them about things that they shouldn't do. Other than that, I don't bother them. And that's how I parent like my dad. And I'm big on education. I'm big on if you don't know something, go find out. And that was what my mom instilled. And so those things were instilled when you were young. You're like, wow, those are phenomenal skill sets. Like my mom was super clean. I find myself being super clean. The cleanliness bleeds over into being appreciative. And so those are like some really good skills that my mom gave to me and my dad gave to me. One thing that my mom used to do, and I think imprinting can keep going on as you go, especially when you're still under the guise of someone that's over you in a power position, such as a parent, a grandmother, or uncle, whoever, you can still keep getting imprinted. And I think that that is true. And I know that some of my research that I did on this Looking at it is that some of the imprint really it takes place in your primary years, such as when you're a baby, toddler. But I think imprinting can keep going on. Imprinting can come upon you through good experiences. It can come upon you through trauma. And one thing that my mom used to always instill in me is that she wanted me to be independent to the point where I can actually be a viable husband and father. You know, like my mom used to, she was a nurse. My mom's retired now. She was a nurse and my mom used to have to go and work these early shifts at the hospital. And we lived in Gary, Indiana when it was cold because we get Chicago weather. And my mom would wake me up in the morning and say, my car would not stop. I need you to go downstairs and figure it out. Now, I'm no mechanic, but I used to work at my uncle's gas station. My uncle uh, was best friends with my dad. They really were best friends. My uncle was married to my mom's sister, so it was like best friends married the two sisters. So my uncle owned the Shell gas station, and I used to work there on weekends. And so I didn't know about cars just by working there. All I did was clean up. I would sweep, mop, and clean the bathrooms and wipe the pumps down, would do with some windows and maybe do like self-service. I would pump some gas, but sometimes I would go over the number and get yelled at. But that was my job as a kid, and that's when, when you actually – pump gas, like the actual attendant came out and pumped gas. You're like, 
Wilbon, you are like really old. Like we haven't seen that since Andy Griffith. Well, I'm old, <laughs> but I'm old and young at the same time. So anyway, I learned about cars in that way. But a lot of times with my mom, she used to dri- drive a Ford Grenada during this time. And the Grenada, I think, had carburetor issues or maybe her car had carburetor issues is that my mom used to flood the car. When, she, when it wouldn't start for her initially, probably needed new spark plugs or something like that, or it needed to be changed. But my mom used to flood the car, used to get impatient, come upstairs, wake me up, you know, and you're saying, my mom waking me up at 5.30 in the morning, I'm going to have to get up, clean her car off. I would have to go down there and figure out how to start it. Now, the key thing was the first thing I would check is I would check the battery, make sure the battery was tight, make sure there was no corrosion. And then I would go and check the carburetor. Some of you said carburetor. I'm like, yeah, carburetor. So the carburetor, I would smell gas. If I smell gas, I would take the old handy dandy screwdriver. I would put it in the slat to let it open up. And then I would be able to start the car. Then I would put everything back in place, warm the car up, and then the car would be ready for my mom to make it to work. Well, my mom was big on you being a man. She pushed that on me. She knew that my dad you know, had passed away and she knew that that part of me needed to be still adventurous as a boy to go out and to figure things out. She made sure that she put me in sports. I wasn't the greatest athlete. You know what I mean? I wasn't bad, but I wasn't the greatest athlete. But those things that my mom imprinted on me is to keep going out there and do something, even if you fail. And those experiences still are on me today. Like I'm never afraid of hard work. I'm always going to try to figure something out. I can fix things, whatever it is, I can fix it. And I, and I really thank her for that. And so those imprints can be good. And the ways that the imprints can be not so, not so good, I'm going to say not so good, or just like an experience that you need to learn from that's very difficult. And as I shared in like a previous podcast, I got a divorce when I was younger because I had emotional issues between my parents because they did have some dysfunction in their marriage. And I did pick up on those things as a, as a little boy. And I think those things imprinted on me in a way that I had to figure out what's good and bad and how do I get past the hurt, the trauma or the loss. And I never did that. I never did that in my 20s. What I did was in my 20s is that I took the parts that they gave me in terms of being a hard worker and successful And I went to college. I I went and got my master's. I did all this other stuff. I built my career. Then I got married when I was younger. I hadn't worked through the other part. And that was how to deal with the trauma that makes me make choices like distrust, vulnerability, blaming, all those things that I did in my first marriage that I didn't know where they were coming from. You know what I mean? I'm like, where is that coming from? Like, why am I this way? What's the deal? And so I had to do a lot of like research and I had to like work on that stuff. And it took me years to work on that stuff. It took me years to figure out why am I making these choices? And I had to go back to my parents. I had to go back to my grandparents. I had to go back to the people around me. And I said, you know what? If you don't like being vulnerable, be vulnerable. If you feel like you can't communicate, then you need to communicate. Because these things that maybe were survival tools that I saw these young parents exhibiting, maybe they needed those behaviors when they were younger to survive in those circumstances. 
But the environment that I was living in, it was a thriving environment, not a surviving environment. And so when you're trying to use those survival skills in a thriving environment, because when you work hard, you want to get into the next level in life or a different class in life. But survival skills don't work in thriving environments, such as having your own home and having your wife and your children and all that. You can't go back to behaviors that don't fit that in that world. And so what I did was in those areas of me being imprinted, I did the opposite. I said, you know what? I'm going to learn how to be vulnerable. I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to learn how to do that. But my marriage was already over. Womp, womp, womp. You know what? And so I was like, you know what? I had to deal with that hurt of loss. And one of the biggest losses in my life outside of losing my dad is not being able to get it right from inside. And I said, you know what? If I ever get blessed to make a great choice of getting another wife, of someone to be with me as a life partner, and I get a chance to, to start over, I'm going to work on those things. I'm going to work on those things before she comes, before I meet her. I'm going to work on those things. And I did work on those things. I worked on a lot of those things, but some of the things I, I didn't know that I needed to work on because I didn't have the other person. And so my wife now that, I, that I'm with, it's been almost, it's almost 10 years we've been together. And I would say that the biggest thing that I had was being vulnerable to her in a way that allowed me to say whether it hurts, whether it makes me happy, or whether it makes me numb or indifferent, I'm going to always be vulnerable to her. I'm going to always open up to her and I'm going to learn how to trust, not say trust her, but trust myself that I'm going to be okay regardless of what the outcome is. Once I learn that I'm okay regardless of what the outcome is, I'm able to be open. So I broke through that imprint of not of distrust, vulnerability. I broke through that because I'm not the 20 something year old that's mimicking my parents. Like when my parents were in their early 20s, I'm a little baby and I'm like, hey, you know what? I guess that's the way we do things around here. Well, yeah, it may work in some environments, but it doesn't work when you're in a thriving marriage and, and you're successful. You can't be that way. You got to be open and vulnerable and you deal with whatever happens. Once I learned to be that way with my wife, our relationship went from like we were just crazy about each other to like I am with her thick and thin. That is one of my best friends because of that, because I showed her that I can work on that part of myself. And it wasn't her fault. It was just that I cared enough about her, loved her enough to allow her to be able to trigger that part of me to help me work on it. And ever since then, that I was able to get past that point, everything that I touch usually works for me or I learn from it. And so I'm so super excited about doing detective work on myself. It was like I had to be a private detective on my own life. And I still do it. I do it you know, with my finances. I do it when I go into new environments. I make sure that things that my family and my surroundings when I was a child, that those things, they serve me well. And the things that don't serve me well, I figure out how, what's the other side of it. There's always an other side of when something doesn't serve you well. You don't have to stop at that just because 
well, that's how my mom did it. That's how my dad did it. That's how my grandmother did it. You can still use that as a, as a skill, as a way to look at yourself to say, well, how do I get past it? How do I get past that imprinting to have wonderful relationships, to have the money that I want, to chase my goals, to look at myself differently? People think, you know, race is a big thing in America. You're not born racist. You're not born hating. That is a learned behavior. It's imprinted in you. A lot of times, you know, I've been around people that you guys don't know on podcasts. I am African-American. I'm a black man. If you have never experienced this and they're like, you know, me, I'm a darker hue black man, is that a lot of times people who aren't accustomed to being around dark skinned men, a lot of times they get a first reaction of like, wow, you know what I mean? But if you're a good person, they can actually see the good person in you. It's an instantaneous thing of them looking for the person. But if a person has the imprint of being taught to just dislike people based on their skin color or, or how they look, then they have to go past that. You know, because it's like there's no reason for you to like someone, dislike someone for how they look. Maybe you've just been around people who maybe have given you that impression or that ideology, but it really is not true. It's like you can break through those imprints also of like racism. You can break through those imprints of like your self-image. Like you might think that you're not this beautiful person, but you are beautiful. We all are beautiful. And you can look at the beauty in yourself by looking at yourself in a different way. Dating and romance and picking a partner. Those things are really vital. You know what I mean? You get these sexual imprints. Like you think that this is the desirable person. What I had to learn about that, and that was very interesting, is that you think that this is the person that you're supposed to be with because that's who you dated when you were in your 20s. And you think that this is the type that you have, this type. But then you might meet a person who has all of the check boxes, but you might call them boring. There is a good thing about boring. Boring is, is this thing of like, it's not just like a person's boring. Boring is the thing over it. It's not the instant attraction that you've been imprinted with. You have to go over the bridge of the word boring and go into the other side and look at that person in a different light. I probably could have been married right out of college because I met so many girls who were really just awesome girls that you probably could just have married after college. But I used to say, man, that girl is boring. But then I would go for the girl who did the exciting stuff or had me mesmerized because she wore makeup or whatever it was. And, and it was a thing of like, you know what? That one girl who was just as pretty as the other girl that I quote unquote called glamorous would have made a better wife for me when I was younger. And I didn't understand that because I consider myself boring. You know, like at this at my age is that I do the same things over and over again. I work on my family. I work on my business. I work on my health and I work to get better at whatever I'm trying to be. That takes consistency and it takes a consistent thing. I once heard this from T.D. Jakes. He said success is like a spiral. But as long as you're spiraling up, it's going to be in the revolving loop of going up, not going down. You can spiral up. So it, you're doing the same things, but you're getting better and better and better. It may be deemed as boring because it's, it has consistency in it. Like my wife will call me sometimes and she'll say, what are you doing? She said, never mind. I know what you're doing. She knows she knows during the day I'm working. 
She knows if, if it's at certain times, she knows I'm playing ball. She knows I'm doing certain things. Now, those things do produce things that keeps me spiraling up. But I'm the same way every day, you know, and things that don't serve me well, I take those things out and replace it with something else. And so I'm just a detective. Not to get all like, you know, like I'm like Freud or something, like I know all about imprinting in the mind and all that. But what I will say is that I think we all should look at our lives, do a little family history. And some looking back at, at the family history may be painful. And if it is painful, let's look at why it's painful. And let's look at how can we take that and change the actual perspective of it. Shift your perspective when you're looking back. Because sometimes people don't want to look back is because they're looking at it from a hurt lens. Look at it as gathering information and shift the perspective. And once you shift the perspective, you can look at your life in different ways. Because, you know, I learned this from Tony Robbins, is that it's called an empowering context. When you look at things, you're the narrator of your story. And your story goes inside your mind, which has been imprinted. So you can actually change the narration. You know, you can go from saying, oh, I can't do this to actually doing it. You can just change the narration. A lot of times when I'm playing ball with guys who are like 20 years younger than me or or even younger, and I'm playing with them, I'm hanging with them. And so what I do is I say, I'm just an old rookie. I just say, I'm just an old rookie. And I have to learn how to play with them. The game has changed. These guys shoot threes more. They're quicker. They cross over more. They don't like contact. They have a whole different context of how they play basketball now. Well, I'm just a, I'm an old, I'm an old rookie. So I go out there and if I learn something, I do that. And I add on and I add on until I learn how to play with them. So I change the context of me being this ex-college basketball player to now just being a rookie, learning how to play again. And so when I change the context, I say, well, you know what? As a rookie, I'm going to get better and I'm going to get better than them. And so once I empower myself like that, I say, well, you know what? I can always change the context of something. So that's why I say imprinting is great. Doing the detective work is great. And it can actually change your mental and emotional state, you know, by understanding where that thing comes from. And it's like there's some things that you do that you like. Keep doing them and make them better. Things that you don't like. You know, change them, look at them, examine them, make them better. A lot of times the things that you like about yourself that you do well can carry over to other areas of your life. So that's my take on emotional and mental imprinting. I hope you got something from this show and thank you for joining me and I'll see you soon. 